I think those words are worth repeating, and I'm going to read them again. From Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, Blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. Why don't we pray? So Jesus, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for the collection of the sayings that you proclaimed when you were here. Lord, as we gather around uh, this passage uh, as a community, uh, we want to be um, submitting to you, Father. You are the teacher this morning. So whatever it is that we're going through, we place before you, and we ask that you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I want to go to Bible college. That's my context. That's, that's where I operate. And very often when we read in Scripture, we, we kind of uh, there's this racy sort of feel, that's certainly my experience uh, over a long period of time. You read the Bible, you, you, you tick off your, your 20 minutes in the chair, which is very important and something that we value here at Worldview, this idea of coming before the Lord each day and reading Scripture. You tick off your reading and, and you go about your day. But at Bible college, um, as a student, you need to sit deeper. You need to wrestle with Scripture uh, and you spend a long time doing this. And sometimes it's very frustrating, especially when the essay comes around and you have to kind of produce something that uh, highlights what you've learned. Um, so the Sermon on the Mount, we're only going to do this for a few minutes, by the way, Bible College, is found in two of the Gospels, two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke. And they're not word for word identical. So Matthew and Luke record Jesus' teaching, but they present them differently. For example, Luke 6 um, chapter 6 highlights the important topics of Jesus' teaching, um, and it does, but it doesn't include them all. Matthew, on the other hand, in chapter 5, 6, and 7, is much more detailed in what Jesus is saying. In uh, Luke 6, again, Luke compresses the teachings. So he has blessings and what they call warnings or woes, and he puts them together. Whereas Matthew doesn't do this. Matthew um, starts with the blessings at the start of the gospel, and then um, he launches into the woes or the warnings towards the end of the book in Matthew 23. And so the natural question is, why? Why does Matthew do this? Matthew found the truth, and he wants to convey what he had seen or heard, and he wants to do it to an audience that doesn't know this Jesus. And so he's compelled to write about this truth and this man that they call the Messiah. In other words, he's very intentional about painting a portrait of Jesus um, in a way that uh, uh, allows us to follow him. And when you think about this story, he's a storyteller, ultimately. And storytellers use all sorts of different ways in order to convey uh, a truth, a, a story. 
Um, they use different mechanisms to tell the story. Meter and rhyme for the poet. Metaphors and similes for the novelist. Pause and suspense for the narrator. Melody and dynamics for the vocalist. Matthew is a storyteller. And he has a very important story to, to tell. And he uses different writing styles to make sure the points come across. And the Sermon on the Mount is no exception. So it's spread across three chapters from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And there's a pattern um, where the chapter 5 is a reflection of chapter 7. And you can think of this as a ladder. There's a sense of movement up towards a point, And then there's this um, climbing down the ladder um, after on the other side of that, of, that, um, of that point. And I want to show you this in the form of an image. And I'll ask uh, Toby to show that image. And so you can see here that there is these opposites happening, especially in the blessings and warnings, chapter 5 and chapter 7. Then there's this dialogue around the entrance. Who does the kingdom belong to? In chapter, uh, verses 17 and 20 in 5, and then verses 12 and 23 in chapter 7. Then there's a large portion, this idea of what it means to live in the kingdom. And then it's slowly moving up um, to this discussion around doing things in secret as opposed to the, the people of the law at the time who were sort of showing themselves to be doing right. And then there are conditions of prayer. This is where Jesus is saying, when you pray, this is how you do it. And ultimately, it leads to the point. And the point is the Lord's Prayer. And then it comes down the other side. So I'm not suggesting that the Sermon on the Mount is all just about the prayer, the Lord's Prayer. What I'm saying is that Matthew wants us to think about what it means to take on this teaching of Jesus. And it culminates in the Lord's Prayer, and everything leading up to it is important, and everything following that is just as important as well. And so an example of this would be a question. The only way to understand the Lord's Prayer is to see it in context. For example, are you able to pray, your kingdom come, if you haven't understood what Jesus was talking about? So there are two passages this morning that I want to focus on. Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, and then towards the end, chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. I wonder whether you've experienced a situation where, the, where you didn't know whether you were in or you were out. Maybe it was a sporting story, or maybe it was a family situation, some tension, or maybe it's a, it's a work-related issue. Were you in or were you out? Maybe you didn't know where you stood. For me, this was very real, at a border crossing between Mexico and Guatemala. And um, this is where... Uh, we were so disorientated. We didn't know. We were in kind of no man's land, literally. It was a small border crossing. There was a bridge. And we were right in the middle. We were humiliated. We were vulnerable. This is me and my family. We were fearful. We were confused about where to be and what to do. Essentially, this is what it was like for some of the people that heard Jesus speak these blessings. In, the, in Jesus' day, there were teachers who were experts in the law, uh, in the law of Moses. But the gift of the commandments that God um, gave to his people through Moses all that time ago had become so complicated that it was a hindrance for so many. Whereas the law should have provided a way for right living, 
a way to know how to worship God, a way to tr- uh, know how to treat the homeless, a way uh, to know how to uh, treat the widows, and a way to know how to look after foreigners. Instead, it became a hollow activity where it, made, it was more valuable to appear to do the right thing than it was actually doing right. So the condition of our heart, the condition of my heart, took a back seat. But Jesus was about to turn this completely upside down. And at the Sermon on the Mount, he makes a declaration. Everyone knew that God was the one who blessed. There was no questions around this. But when Jesus started listing who will be blessed, there's a tremendous shift just about to take place. It's not the law keepers or the doers that will be blessed, but those who have the right heart. See, the teachers of the law prioritized external practices, but Jesus declares that living in God's kingdom meant that the law needs to live inside and work out from inside. This is the law God always wanted to take um, shape for Israel as a nation. He had established a group of people through Abraham, and he would bless them so that the rest of the world could see and believe that there was one true God. But time and time again, Israel walked away from God's promise, from God's covenant, to the point that the law became about self-interest, self-assurance, seen to be doing the right thing. God's law was never about self-fulfillment as a nation. It was about how to be in right relationship with God on one hand and how to treat others on the other. And so ultimately, Jesus came to fulfill what Israel was never really able to accomplish by herself. God's perfect community is not possible unless his law of love takes root in our hearts. And so we come to the Beatitudes, and Jesus is announcing a kingdom standard that centered on love in action. And this was confronting to Jesus' hearers. This was shocking. It forced them to think. It forced introspection. And they are left wondering, am I in or am I out? I don't know. I don't know where I sit anymore. This is what they would have thought. It turns out that all the wrong type of people were in God's side and all the right type of people were against God. Think about this. According to the law, the people who were out were the ones who couldn't get their act together, who couldn't move past their hard circumstances, who couldn't solve a a relational conflict without abuse of power who couldn't fulfill the law's requirements regardless of the condition of their hearts, who couldn't stand up for themselves. According to the law, they were out. But according to Jesus' kingdom, the ones who were in were the ones who remained faithful to God despite their tough circumstances, who were desperate for God's touch in their lives, knowing that They couldn't even come close to being right with God in their own strength. It was those who rubbed shoulders with others who were suffering. It was those who sought peace in hopeless situations. It was those who were able to count the cost of following the way of Jesus. You see, the Beatitudes were countercultural. 
caught people off guard, the announcement of God's kingdom flipped everything upside down. So when Jesus spoke these blessing statements, a new standard was set. And the way Matthew tells the story, we, the readers, are left with an invitation. And I want to ask you some questions. Will you submit your life to live in this new kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim? Will you embrace the opportunities and challenge of not only living right with God, but also embracing the lives of others? Will you accept that doing life with others is messy, uncertain, tough, painful, it's tiring, it's inconvenient? But will you also accept that this is the right life to live, to love others, to serve others, to lift others up, to sacrifice for others, to help others out of their pain and affliction, to point others to Jesus. Will you be that person? This is what we call kingdom ethics. It's not only a projection of what the kingdom will look like in the future, it's an invitation to participate in that kingdom ethic now. And at one point, these rule experts, not not in this scene, but later on uh, in the book of Matthew, Uh, There's so much tension in the air with these experts. And um, they're almost as if they're asking themselves, well, what is the law? Because I don't know if I'm in or if I'm out. And they come to Jesus and they said, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? This was a test. Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Another other translations say the word hang. These hang on these, um, the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, the rule followers failed to see that God's own character was revealed in the law and the prophets. And they were so entrenched in their mechanisms that they lost focus of the big picture, to love God and to love others. And if you read the Beatitudes, as Tony highlighted last week, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, they will not relent. To participate in God's kingdom is to pay very careful attention to how this love is expressed. It cannot, it cannot be in word alone. It has to be matched with action. And so Tony last week reminded us and painted a a beautiful picture of this concept of grace sitting on a rock. And this is the starting place. This is Jesus, the initiator, starts this this relationship. And um, there's no question about this. He's the one that brings himself down, places himself in a position uh, where we can see and we can hear him. And grace is that, is, that, is that person, extending an invitation to us to consider. But if you think about this in terms of a, of a coin, that's only really one side of the coin. Grace sitting on the rock is only one side of the coin. You flip to the other side of the coin, and what you get is the action. You see, we are saved by grace, and we are judged by our actions. 
We are saved by grace on one hand, and we are judged by our actions on the other. It's the same coin with two different sides. Now, I realize um, the word judge is strong. It's challenging. But consider the implication. What is love if not expressed through actions? What use is a kingdom to Jesus if his followers don't do anything? Did, did Jesus come to us and say, I love you, and then walk away? <clears throat> Excuse me. Is that what he did? No. He followed through with the most powerful, tremendous, selfless action that he could do, and that was to die on a cross. So it's difficult to read what Jesus says at the end of the sermon, and I'm jumping over to chapter 7 now. In verse 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, only the one who does the will of the Father in heaven. You see, our actions are the fuel that Jesus, through his Spirit, ignite, uses to ignite his presence in a broken world. We need the actions. He could have chosen to work this out in any way he pleased, but he chose to do it through you and through me. Actions are so important to Jesus, description of the kingdom, that he finishes his sermon with a sober warning. Your actions will determine whether you're in or whether you're out. How else will Jesus know if you are serious about living according to the kingdom standards? So we have to be careful here because when I'm talking about in or out and when I'm talking about the kingdom, I'm not talking about salvation. We have to be theologically careful here because very often, sometimes we confuse the kingdom for salvation, but they're two different things. And so when I'm asking the question, are you in or are you out, what we're really talking about, are you relying on, on grace and just sitting in that comfortable space? Or are you willing to engage in what God is asking you to do, particularly with the people that are around you? So I'm not talking about salvation when we die. I'm talking about actions now while we're alive. So our actions will reveal whether God's law, law is really in our hearts. As he finishes his sermon, Jesus described two types of people. The one who produced bad fruit, which can only come from a bad tree, or the ones who produce good fruit. And that, that's the fruit that comes from the good tree. This will be the evidence of who he is in and who he's out. And if you read John uh, 15, uh, there's a beautiful description. He's having this exchange with his disciples. And uh, he says to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me or abide in me and I will remain in you. And Jesus repeats that word something like seven or eight times in the space of just as many verses. Remain in me. Come to me. Spend time with me. Um, Get your 20 minutes in the chair. Open the Bible. Spend the time with the Lord. Journal. Spend time with Him. And out of that time will come good fruit. You will see the things that need doing. You can't just stay in the chair all day. You have to go out and you have to embrace the challenges that are around you. Your neighbors, your work colleagues, um, fellow students, whatever it is, there are people that need to know about God's kingdom 
that is available now. So this fruit is the evidence of who is in and who is out. So as I finish, I want to ask you a question, and that is what sort of fruit are you producing? As you reflect on your own life, can you say that you are one who lives out the kingdom? You accept God's grace for sure, but you also match it, the same coin, you match it with actions. I want us to all stand because I'm going to pray as we finish. Let me finish with a word of prayer, and I'm really going to pray for three people, I think. Maybe there are some of you here this morning or or watching um, online, and maybe you don't quite know what this Jesus thing is. Maybe this is an invitation for you to think seriously about what it means to accept Jesus in your heart and then to be able to live the rest of your life out. Maybe you are a Christian, but maybe you've sat in this comfortable space for a while. Maybe you need to reassess, realign that heart of yours with God's heart. And maybe there are veterans here, and you've been, if you like, you've um, enjoyed grace the longest, and your actions need to match that. Your actions need to be um, evident to others. So let me pray. And so, Lord, we want to thank you for uh, the challenge that it is to follow you. And it's, of course, invitation and challenge. We are drawn to this amazing person that you are. Uh, we are drawn to the things that you say. And sometimes we, we don't really understand it. But um, I think this is where faith comes in. And um, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're invited to enter into a way of living that demonstrates that your kingdom is real, your kingdom is tangible. And we not only want to use words, but we want to match it with actions. And so, Father, maybe there's someone here this morning or watching online, and they don't really know what this Jesus thing is all about, but there's some uneasiness um, in their lives, and they recognize that they need to follow you. They recognize that they need a new hope. They need a a breath of fresh air. Lord, would you um, place place yourself before them? And enter their hearts as they ask you to do so. That their lives will be turned around for the sake of your kingdom. That they would be able to see that you want to use them for your glory. And maybe there are new Christians here this morning that um, have really come into terms with this idea of following you. Lord, our friends need to understand that there is more to life than just right belief. It's all about reorienting our lives to follow you. So give them courage, Lord. Give them faith to to make those bold decisions that they need to make regarding following you. And maybe, there are, I know there are veterans here, veterans in the faith, the pillars that have been around for a long time. Would you stir in them, Father, a desire to keep going, keep doing the race, keep persevering. And uh, when uh, they want to give up, they want to say, well, I'm, I'm done with this because I'm already uh, in the in crowd. Lord, I pray that you would bring challenge to them as well that their actions would be matched um, by what the things that they've experienced from you. And so, Lord, as a community, we place ourselves before you and we ask, Jesus, have your way at Door of Hope. May Door of Hope be the, the place that offers light to our city, that we would become a blessing this year in new ways, in expanding ways, in multiplying ways. And it's all because of you, Son Jesus. And it's the name that we choose to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.